0: Welcome to the Adamantium Podcast, episode number 55. Welcome back, Adam Antomaniacs. I am your host, Adam R. Harrison. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you had a fantastic long weekend. I always find the May long weekends always a really busy one because it's the first one of the summer. And this year was no exception. I had a wedding and a birthday party. I covered the opening night at the Budweiser stage with the Strokes. And of course, there was the Game of Thrones finale. I hope you weren't too disappointed. Uh, I myself actually didn't mind it at all. It did wrap everything up in a neat little package. You know, there wasn't any crazy surprises like the way, uh, I guess, the series started. Um, but I am very interested to see how George R.R. R. Martin wraps his version up. I'm sure it'll be very different. Uh, we won't talk about it too much because I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it. Also, because I'm going to try and keep this intro short because we've got a nice, long, juicy episode for you today. Lots of great music stories for you in this episode. Today, we're joined by music producer Mark Howard, who has worked with some of the most iconic names in rock and roll he's worked with bob dylan neil young rem red hot chili peppers uh, the tragically hip and of course my favorite band of all time u2 he worked on u2's album all that you can't leave behind which is not only one of my favorite u2 albums it's one of my favorite albums of all time i remember actually in 2010 making a list of my favorite albums from the past decade, so from 2000-2010, and I believe number one was all that you can't leave behind. So that's how much I love that album. Anyways, Mark's got some fantastic stories about working with these legends. The reason that we're talking to him today is because he just released a book, it's called Listen Up, and it's got a lot of information about recording music and producing music, but as well, you know, stories from his life. The book came out on May 14th. Uh, It's available, uh, you can find it on Amazon or Indigo uh, or if you're listening from the States at Barnes & Noble. Mark will also be hosting a couple of events. If you're listening to this podcast right away, uh, Mark is actually hosting his book release tonight, which is May 22nd at the Horseshoe Tavern. Entry is free. He'll be signing copies of the book. There's also going to be a photo and gallery exhibit Uh, some installations from you know working with these legendary artists. Um, I think some of them are are time lapse photos, and uh, it sounds really cool. He talks about it in the interview as well. Mark will be hosting a benefit concert on June 1st in Hamilton at the Music Hall, where different artists are going to be playing uh songs from his collection of songs that he produced. All the proceeds go to the Princess Margaret Hospital, Mark. Uh, is a cancer survivor himself and he's got a very inspiring story and uh, he just wants to give kind of give back now he's lucky to be alive so he wants to give back to the community and try and help others that have gone or that are going through what he has gone through so that's june 1st at the music hall in hamilton and you can get your tickets for that online okay Uh, if you're listening to this podcast on itunes or apple Podcasts, please do hit that subscribe button Also, leave us a comment and a rating uh, if you'd be so kind. You can also subscribe to The Adamantium Podcast on Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, basically wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow along on social media. The Adamantium Podcast is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can find us just by searching The Adamantium. And lastly, just an uh, FYI, there'll be no episode Uh, next week uh, as I'll be in Ireland visiting some family and attending a family wedding Uh, but I've got an awesome awesome episode lined up for right away when I get back uh, the following week but right here right now let's hear some awesome rock and roll stories from producer Mark Howard on episode number 55 of the adamantium podcast have a great week everyone We're here with Mark Howard. Hello. Thank you for very much for joining us. All right, well, really thanks, appreciate it. Thanks for the invitation. Really. Yeah, you found the place okay? Yeah, yeah. It was a little bit easy, of a nightmare around here, uh, but yeah. Parking right across the street. Perfect. Yeah. So we're um, we're here to talk about your book. Listen up. Yep. Um, uh, but before before we get into the book, um, I want to find how I want to I want to first talk about your first encounters with music and how you kind of fell in love with the the art of producing and engineering.
1: Okay. Um well it's um I first discovered music when I was probably uh thirteen. Okay. And uh I remember and you were in like, Canada by then. Yeah, yeah, I was okay. in Canada. I was born in Manchester and my parents immigrated here in sixty seven. And so uh, yeah, living in Hamilton, Ontario with mm-hmm. my parents and I live right beside McMaster Hospital, uh, okay. McMaster University. So, also, uh, um, so yeah. So I remember the phone ringing one day, and uh, I pick it up, and it's uh, the Royal Conservatory uh, um, School of Music, mm-hmm. and they said, "Is there any children there interested in playing any instruments?" And so uh, I said, "Mom, somebody's on the phone." And so she goes, "Are you interested in playing in it?" I said. Yeah, I want to play drums. Okay. And so uh, so I remember they said, well, they uh, they need to come to do a test to see if I'm musical or not. Okay. And so, you know, they show up at the house and they bring an accordion, you know, to see if you're musical. And uh, they say, can you play like Baba ba Black Sheep? And they give you the notes and, and to see if you can kind of do it with, you know, playing this accordion. And uh, I did a terrible job, of course. And uh, they <laughs> said, you're a musical. <laughs> okay. And so uh, I said, I want to do drum lessons. And so that's kind of where it started, the musical start of it. And, you know, I got a drum kit, and I probably drove my parents pretty crazy, banging around, on not knowing how to play drums, and just banging on, playing records really loud and smashing. Yeah. You know to, was exactly to, the same, yeah. Yeah, so, um, so it kind of started there, and... So, I always kind of had a, a kind of a musical kind of uh, bone in me where I um, I ended up taking the basement of the house and turning it into kind of like a, uh, I took the uh, uh, ping pong table and turned it into a drum riser and okay. you know, I had lights and, you know, like uh, couches wow. and posters and so it was kind of like a little uh, club in a way and, yeah. and uh, it was kind of a hangout for me and my friends to kind of, you know, jam and... and uh, and so it kind of started in the basement. And so, yeah, it became like a, a cool scene for a while for all the kids. And my parents really, they didn't you know care if we smoked weed or not. And you know, my dad would like, say, what's that smell? Yeah. And it's like, oh, it's American tobacco, Dad. Was yeah. like, oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, so it, it got quite psychedelic and down there because this was like, you know, it's late 70s yeah kind of uh, so and then punk rock came in and so we kind of had like a little punk rock version of a band and so so from there um i ended up uh quitting school when early on like uh, grade nine i didn't even never finish grade nine and i was i was put back a year so i was already already a year older than the other kids so they took me off uh, out of school, and um, I went on this kind of program where I worked for the board, board of education, mm-hmm. kind of worked uh, helping them put books in libraries and stuff like that. And then, uh, then once I was sixteen, um, I just finished completely, and uh, and I just went and you know uh, I wanted to be an architect. Okay. So I found a, a really cool architect place in Hamilton called Howard Mark Architect. Okay. My name is Mark Howard. Yeah. I thought. I'm set. You know, I went in there, showed him my drawings. He goes, this is amazing. And uh, he he said, go back and get your grade 12 and I'll hire you. Okay. And I thought, well, that's not going to happen because I'm not going back to school. And so I ended up getting a job as a a layout artist for a tombstone company. Okay. And so I did all the praying hands and Jesus faces and all the flowers that go around the side. That was all hand done in those days. It's computerized now. But in those days, I would do, do all the, you know, those like a hell's angel that died and they wanted the skull with the wing on the side. Okay. I did, I draw that for them and that was on their stone. And so it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty, you know, interesting walking over all those graves. Yeah. I put the stones in the cemetery also. So you had to put, you had to put them in as well. Yeah. Yeah. So we had a big truck and a crane left them yeah. up and you know, we placed them and stuff like that. Um, so until, uh, I did that until I was 19. Okay. And so, um, uh, once I was 19, I found uh, another place in Hamilton that uh, was called the Guitar Clinic. Okay. And uh, it was uh, this guy, George Folonetto, and he built these beautiful hand base, handmade basses and uh, and guitars. And his brother, Lou, ran the other side of the company, which was uh, PA in lighting. Okay. So I worked for Lou. And so he would send me out to, you know on these gigs to set up PA and do sound and you know sometimes it was like really radical like Portuguese weddings and (laughs) and then uh, but then I would like get cool gigs Uh, there was this really great guy John Lewis uh, in Hamilton and he had a band and we would go to uh, Huntsville every weekend and so it was was a great scene and I got you know educated on uh, a lot of music and you know listening to the they would play a lot of songs by the band and, and like really cool kind of blues and stuff like that so Um, so it ended up from there I ended up taking a job with a guy called King Biscuit Boy he's one of Canada's legendary harmonica players okay and he's up there like he made records with the meters from New Orleans and you know this guy was pretty legendary and uh, so I did a cross-country tour with him from Hamilton to Vancouver and back and so when I came back uh, I was on my motorcycle. I had a, a Norton, uh, uh, it was an 810 Dunstall. It was kind of a racing kind of uh, mm-hmm. Norton. And uh, I got in that motorcycle accident, and I wasn't able to go back out on the road because I hurt my back. And so I got a job um, uh, at this studio called Grand Avenue in Hamilton. Okay. And Grand Avenue is kind of legendary for uh, like Brian Eno made a lot of Zambian records there and and you two had kind of done a little bit of work there Mm -hmm. so when I walked in the door um, it used to be owned by Daniel Lamois, but he had sold it to his best friend Bob Deutsch so I I worked for the Deutsches and so I walked in the door and and uh, I said uh, I've got a deal with the Canadian government they'll pay half my wage Mm -hmm. if you'll pay the other half and they said yeah we'll take that and so they showed me how to make coffee for the clients and so right yeah so that was my first job is making coffee right okay of course and so yeah. from there you know because i had the experience of uh a live mixing yeah and uh and you know when you're on the road it's all about quick setups of and, course yeah. and being like on time so you're already prepared yeah yeah or... so i was always prepared so They liked me that I could set stuff up fast, Mm -hmm. and I knew where it was, and I already knew they didn't have to teach me anything, really, other than kind of how to use a tape recorder. Okay. And so I worked there for maybe six months, and I became the chief engineer and then wow. uh, they put me in on this night session. From making coffee to chief engineer. Yeah, that. yeah. It was, it was quite quick. And, you know, like uh, Bob only wanted to work from 9 to 5. So, hey, try this night session. And yeah. So I was doing, like, syndicated radio shows for them and wow. and all these kind of, like, you know, uh, the shuffle demons and, like, all these kind of bands from Toronto were coming yes, through. Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of a cool kind of a break-in period for me. And then um, they put me on this one session with this guy called Daniel Lanois and he just come from Ireland uh, making a record with a band, a little Irish band called U2. Yeah. And uh, that would have been Joshua Tree record. Wow. So he was like fresh so off the So he worked on Joshua Tree. Yeah, he, he, he co-produced uh, Joshua Tree with Brian Eno. Okay. And so uh, so he came in to start his um, solo record. Mm-hmm. And so this was his first record outside of, uh, you know, making records for other people. Yeah. And so I, I, I got put on that session and... You know, he, he would, you know, say st- stuff like, uh, okay, we're going to... So d- was that the first record you produced? Uh, or, no, or no, no, this was, uh, Dan was producing this by himself. Okay. And so um, it wasn't until a little later that my productions came into play. Okay. But, um, but, yeah, so he asked me to come to New Orleans with him and um, to make a record with uh, the Nubble Brothers and okay so I was leaving my job there at Grand Avenue mm-hmm. and Bob who owned the place said well if you leave your job won't be here when you get back wow. and it was only for six months and I said well I'll take the chance because this is a good kind of credit for me and yeah. we'll see if that can boost my career and yeah and so, sure enough, I went to New Orleans and made this record with the Neville Brothers with them, called Yellow Moon. Okay. And uh, and then from that record, um, Bob Dylan got uh, wind that we were in New Orleans, and and Bono had suggested to Dylan that he work with Daniel Lanois to produce his next record. Okay. And so next thing I know, I'm making a Bob Dylan record. You know, like the, second, like, project the notes, second project. The second project, yeah. So within six months, I made the Neville's. Now I'm on Bob Dylan's uh, was called Oh Mercy record. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so. And then it just kept going. And I, you know... Let, yeah, let I mean, go. I was looking at the
0: track list of, of the... And I mean, you, you're talking to people like Bob Dylan, Neil Young, yeah. R.E.M., yeah. U2. You um, and I definitely I want to get into some of the stories about okay. working with them. Yeah. Um, but I was curious why, you know, after... Uh, what made you decide kind of at this point now in your career to, to make the book?
1: Um, okay, so this is, uh, this is kind of a tricky uh, thing that happened, which was, uh, well, not tricky, but uh, I was diagnosed with uh, stage four uh, melanoma cancer. And right, okay. so uh, about a year and a half ago. And um, just a little mole on my shoulder, a little and it was black, and it turned black. And I was in Hawaii vacationing with my kids. And uh, my one daughter, Taya, she goes, Dad, that mole looks a little funny. You should have yeah. it checked out. And so sure enough, I made an appointment and they cut it off okay. and they did a, um, a biopsy on it and yeah. came back and they said, that was cancer, but we've cut it off and it's gone now. And so I thought, okay, great. And so they cut a big chunk out of my shoulder. Yeah. like, you know, the size of, you know, of a coffee cup. <laughs> and, uh, so it took six, six weeks to heal. And as it was healing, I was starting to notice these little black dots around it. And so I asked the dermatologist, I said, what's that? And he goes, that's just kind of dead blood cells, just kind of like coming to the top of the skin right, right. as it's healing. And so what happened was, is he said, well, because it was cancer, it's uh, you need to find yourself a, a, a oncologist to just check out and make sure everything is cool. And mm-hmm. So I find an oncologist. And so by the time I find, get all this going, and this is happening in america because i was working on a a record there and i just went to the doctors there and and i had uh, obamacare insurance just while i was there and so um i find an oncologist but by time i found this oncologist it turned uh into this kind of like blood bubble on my shoulder okay and uh and so they go, oh, geez, it's 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 uh, it's coming back, it's growing right. back, and it's growing back with a vengeance. It's like really aggressive, and so they said, um, okay, this is cancer, and we need to treat it, and uh, we have this uh, special um, clinical trial we can put you on, okay. and by this this clinical trial. It's run by this drug company, and it's this immune therapy. It's, a, it's kind of a new, new treatment, and it's, we've been having really good luck with it. And we think that you are a prime uh, candidate yeah. for this. Thing, for this. Uh, so, so I say, okay, let's do it. But I was freaked out because one of the elements of this treatment was is they were going to inject this stuff called TVAC into my shoulder, Okay. And so this TVAC is a modified herpes virus, oh, okay. and I got freaked out. Herpes, I, I don't want to have herpes. And yeah. They explained, like, it's not herpes, but it's, it's the same kind of genetic makeup uh, okay. as a herpes thing. And so what do they do is they inject it in there, and then the immune therapy uh, sees it, and then, oh, my God, there's something. Let's attack it, and mm-hmm. it attacks it and, and removes it. So, um, so I agree to do it and so they so i got to have more scans done and blood tests and all this stuff and they take the 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 sample that they cut off the shoulder and they have it tested and so now it's three weeks later and now it's grown to the size of a a donut on my arm it's this big huge black blood bubble kind of thing and so uh So three weeks, and I keep on saying we got to do something. Like you know, is it painful? It's not painful, but it's it's scary. It looks like an alien. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like this big black thing on my shoulder, uh, like a blood bag of some sort. Yeah. Anyways, um, so I get the thing, uh, everything tests, everything, all the tests come through, and then we finally get the results back from the biopsy of this of the genetic code of my uh my tumor or whatever and so it comes back as like this uh v600 but uh which is not eligible for this trial and i'm like oh my god like now 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 I, i can't get this trial and now i've got this and what's going on and So as this is going down, you know, family's freaking out up here. And uh, my sister had a friend that was going through cancer. She had uh, a lung cancer and it was like spreading out spread all over her body. But she had found um, through her husband was uh, researched everywhere Mm -hmm. from America, Europe, everywhere. And he found this doctor here in Toronto called Dr. Butler. And he works at Princess Margaret Hospital and he is the head melanoma specialist for okay. north america and he has a laboratory in the bottom of the hospital and he comes up with these clinical trials and comes up with all all these kind of t-cell yeah kind of like uh, uh ways to kind of like you know work around these kind of cancers and so um my sister sent a photo of my shoulder to this woman and she just happened to be having an appointment that day mm-hmm. with dr butler she showed the showed it to dr butler and he said, uh, get that guy up here right now. This is serious. Yeah. And so I got on a jet that night and flew up here, met him the next day. He goes, okay, uh, this is, uh, it's getting, it's gotten really bad. Yeah. We need to do some tests and scans and stuff like that. Uh, but in the meantime, I want to put you on this uh, class one drug and we're going to see if we can shrink it. Okay. And so uh, so he put me on this, this one drug and uh, and sure enough, Within two weeks, it shrunk, shrunk. Okay. shrunk, right down to my shoulders there, you know, level again. I thought, okay, this is good. Okay, we're... we're you know, I'm, stick around I'm for am feeling, a while. I'm yeah. feeling safe, you know, because originally he said, you know, you know, I can keep you alive for at least a year, I think. And I thought, oh, great, a year? Wow. And he goes, well... You know we don't know what will work on you and what won't and so um so he suggested the immune therapy for me and he goes this is what works has been working for melanoma cancer yeah and uh and i think this is would work for you and so he suggested everything and so um but they can't put you on it until they've tested this other drug because this, maybe this mm-hmm. other drug will take it away and, and yeah but the other drug had awful side effects and uh so it worked for like a month and then after that after a month i started to have um really bad side effects of diarrhea um, vomiting and uh convulsions like shaking and stuff like that and my whole body would kind of go into convulsion and then i'd stop taking it it would go away he said try it again you know and see if it was if it was the drug or or for you know whether it's something else so sure enough i did it again and Three weeks went by. It was perfect, and like I was feeling great, and um, happened again. Right. And convulsions, vomiting. I was in you know, taken to emergency, and you know, quite a few times, and so it ended up that this drug had had taken its course, and now was failing. Yeah. And so once it started to fail, this thing starts to grow back oh, again. Okay. And so. So, okay, now I've done the, this tr- uh, class A drug, uh, but now I'm eligible to go on a clinical trial. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so he's going to put me on this clinical trial, uh, they, they and it has the TVAC injection and, and everything. And so I say, okay, great. So they end up doing all these uh, scans and, and tests and all this stuff. And um, it was kind of scary because, you know, they thought... You know, like, what this doesn't work. And of so and it, it, it ends up, uh, you know, they they say, um, I've done all the tests. But, um, yeah, yeah, it's going to take three weeks for, for mm-hmm. all the tests. And meanwhile, it's grown back and it's four times as big. And now it's like this monster, right? Yeah. And so I freak out and I go, what do I do? Uh, you know, I call the doctor back in L.A. And I say, you know, like... Um, this is what's going on he goes come tomorrow i put you on the trial and we give you the tvac i'm like really he goes yeah and I, so i tell the doctor here he said okay we'll work together and so we'll send you back down there okay and so they send me back down there and you know like they they do all the tests all in one day scans bang and i'm ready to get the injection and uh and the tvac shot and then they said the doctor just wants to talk to you and uh, i said okay I'll go see the doctor and the doctor says uh I have bad news I'm like oh what like the insurance won't cover it or what's going on he goes uh, the cancer has spread to your brain and I'm like whoa it's just like you know one, one, after you, well, yeah, one yeah. more yeah. thing and then he said but we're going to give you emergency radiation right now and they sent me down and they put me in you know made this head bucket for me and put me in there and I got 10 doses of radiation on the brain and uh, so uh, so then um I'm not eligible for the, um, the TVAC because I can't go on the clinical trial, but they can put me on the immune therapy. So I did the immune therapy at the same time as, the, um, as I was having the brain radiation. radiation yeah. And so I'm like only one of two patients that... I'm not sure if you can see in the back. All my hair turned white except for this one oh, patch, yeah, yeah. patch one, right two, there. Yeah. So I'm like one of two patients that this has only it's ever half happened half to. It. Okay. And so it's good that my hair went white and my eyelashes went white and eyebrows. Yeah. That means that it's working. Okay. That's like a, like a, a so good... So how long ago was this? This or? was like a year and a half ago. Okay. Yeah. So so now um, I'm not sure if I... You know, I guess it's safe to say up here in Canada. But the doctor went rogue on me and so they, he... They were supposed to throw away that TVAC uh, injection that they had ordered for me because um, I, I, they were all planning to give it to me. But as soon as it went to my brain, they couldn't hey, give nice. me, I couldn't go on the trial, but they could give me the TVAC and my insurance would cover it. Right. And so ended up, uh, instead of them throwing it away, he gave it to me, <laughs> gave me the shot. Yeah. And, and so sure enough, it worked like magic. It's wow. like, whoa. And then, uh, and then the next round, uh, they tried to get, put it on the insurance and they accepted one more round. So I had two injections of this yeah. TVAC and so, so bang, so it's working great. And then, um, uh, suddenly I, I, um, I'd gotten really sick and I, I'd gotten like the stomach in- infection. I ended up in hospital and i was living in a place called topanga canyon which it's in la yep. outside of the city kind of like beside malibu yeah i lived on a ranch by myself oh, and wow. it was kind of like i was up in the mountains and i was just too sick to live up there by myself I right, yeah. you know my kids were there they were looking after me but it's it's it was it was you know i'd lost a lot of weight i was like 98 pounds oh, wow. and so i looked like a skeleton and and so people thought I was going to die, and yeah. and so uh, I I needed to come up back to Canada because my family's here and they could yeah. care for me and and take care of me. So I came back up, called Doctor Butler, and he arranged that I could get the uh, infusions up here. And so sure enough, I so I did like a, almost a year of it. Yeah. And so this last Christmas, um, I, they did these injections into the lymph nodes, and uh, and so they are like just needle. Biopsies and they punch him into these lymph nodes in my shoulder where, around the tumor. And uh, they came back, and the, the woman said, Well, we're not seeing any cancerous cells in here. Wow. And they said, Well, we've got to put it under a microscope and then we'll find that. Yeah. And so, sure enough, they do that and it comes back, and no, we can't find anything. And they said, Well, we've got to do a punch biopsy now. And that's where they take a big chunk of your skin and they check all around it. Yeah. And so they do that, and that comes back, and there's no cancer. And so they do more scans and they look mm-hmm. at everything and nothing, everything's kind of like, it's gone from my spleen. The liver is like one dot, but it could be like a, a shadow or whatever. And, and the brain is like, it's, it's, it hasn't moved. It's exactly the same as what it was. Like, these are like little specks of like yeah. sand, you know? And so, um, so he said, we can't find the cancer anymore. Yeah. And so he goes, but, um, so he it says probably got you under a pretty tight microscope. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm being, you know, scanned and everything. And so uh, he said, I recommend that you continue with the immune therapy until the end of the, the course of the trial. Yeah, or, uh, of the of this period because it's a two year period that people they've been given it to and it, it shows 95 uh approval rate that won't come back wow. if, if you do the full term right yeah and so so that's where i'm at now i've got like six months left that's of amazing. doing this yeah. and so there's no they can't find any more cancer in me but by doing this uh i'll, I'll be cancer yeah, yeah. completely cancer free wow, that's amazing yeah like, and you've really got a
0: to... Second shot at life here, pretty much. Right. You know?
1: I mean, so, so I'm on the couch for a year
0: and Right. And so this, so, so you were pretty much producing records right until
1: you yeah, got diagnosed. Exactly. And I just and fin- the, finished a record in L.A. And, yeah. And I, I'd been diagnosed already, but they didn't know it hadn't grown right. anymore. Okay. And so, um, so you were you were shelved for pretty much. Yeah, a a yeah. Year and while you're doing all these treatments. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so during that period, I started to write down. My life. Had you had you thought bef- before this had happened? Had you ever thought about writing a book? Nope. Or no, okay. it wasn't even a book. It wasn't even supposed to be a book. It was you just a, started writing. It was. Just, uh, I was supposed to write. Um, somebody wanted something for uh, my uh, uh, biography, kind of uh, okay uh, thing for for the website and stuff okay. like that. So I just started writing. And so I just, you know, started, you know, how I grew up and, and then that just yeah. kind of led into, you know, I just started with the Devil Brothers in New Orleans and then it, and then I told it all the stories about this. making their record and how I assembled gotcha. the studio and then how, it, you know, bled into the Bob Dylan record. and, so and what so, point did you
0: realize it was, it had gone from this little thing that you had started
1: writing to a book idea? Um, it, it, it. it started to kind of take form because as i was doing it you know like i'm i'm not really a great writer and i'm not um i'm not great at spelling and i'm not great at uh, punctuation so but my brother's a writer and an artist and so and he encouraged me to keep writing he said uh just, just send me, you know, what you write every day, yeah, and I'll, I'll kind of correct it, and we'll, yeah, like And so it, I did that, and I dedicated every morning till noon to, to my writing, and, uh, and so that's what I did every day, you know, for like six months. And you and, were doing the while you were doing the treatments. Well, I'm doing the treatments, I'm writing all the stuff yeah. down and what I can remember and, yeah. and stuff like that, and send every day. I I'd send it to my brother, and then he'd send it back to me and correct okay. it, and so I started to assemble this thing, and so. And ended up, I went all the way through. it, You know, your whole your life story. Yeah, yeah, the whole life story.
0: So, from from um, the book is kind of like it's it's half uh, like kind of stories across your career, but it's also partially kind of uh,
1: like tips and information on on actually reporting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it's it's yeah, it's like a, a mixture. Well, it's meant to be uh, stories of. of the sessions like say Bob Dylan. And so it spills over to the stories that Bob Dylan would tell. And so I just kind of like tell the stories that he was telling me. And then uh, it also goes into a little bit of technical stuff for the nerds out there, like what kind of microphone and how I got certain sounds on certain records. And, and, you know, like, because I'm kind of like you, I'm a gorilla kind of like I'll go anywhere and work anywhere I want and so I don't work in a typical studio. I'll, right. I'll, I'll find a cool location and set it up, and that will be the location for that record. Yeah. When I
0: was reading bits, it said that you had kind of had like you know five or six different
1: locations that you used in, yeah. Picked and choose. yeah, to choose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was some. Uh, there point. was a, There was three long term studios that I had, and one was in New Orleans called Kingsway which Daniel Lanois owned, but, you know, I built the place up for him. Mm-hmm. And so that, I considered that was my first kind of big installation. And then after that, I ended up uh, in Oxnard, California. Yeah, and okay. uh, it was like an old 1940s Mexican Porn cinema that I converted into really? studio. Took all the seats out, and it was an amazing scene. Did a deep clean. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it was like soft porn, and you know, like you know, yeah, yeah. topless and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and then the next one was called the Paramore which was in Silver Lake, California, and that was a old nineteen twenties movie star estate. Okay. Which, you know, four acres, twenty two room mansion. Yeah. And big ballroom, and I made Lucinda Williams' yeah. World "Without Tears" record there. A little bit of Tom Waits' record was kind of done there. So, yeah, so it was... Uh, so those were kind of like semi-permanent because I did like five years yeah. or three years or whatever, depending on which which one it was. And then I just started to be uh, taking the thing on the road and I yeah. would travel around the world, wow. you know, with you know, all my road cases and, uh, and, and, you know, into Australia, Berlin, mm-hmm. like Jamaica, everywhere, like wow. Hawaii, like everywhere I can find like a cool location and so these days um i have this cool situation where I just rent Airbnb like these mansions, okay. like big huge cottages yeah. or big mansion, A-frame mansions in, in in uh Nashville or so. And so this this way, everybody can sleep there. Everybody's got a room, right? There's right. furniture there and stuff like that. And then I just find a place that's got a big room that I can record in. Yeah. And so uh, and it's been working out. really. So then how
0: how long how long would you have to rent it out for?
1: Well, it depends. Sometimes uh, I went to Australia with Sam Roberts and i rented it for three months yeah you know and so we were yeah, there because you've got to sit yeah. yeah yeah so we were there and so we we're you know his you know we we're there for a couple of weeks before his band sh- showed up and and so yeah so uh, it's like all these kind of cool locations and so they're Is that for sam's last record uh no it was called um bridge to nowhere yeah yeah, yeah. oh yeah. so his, yeah. his second album second album yeah, oh, yeah yeah so uh so yeah that that went over well there and it was it was a great scene. You know? Yeah, they were all freaked out by all the snakes and spiders and all the yeah, crazy yeah. things in Australia. But yeah, so uh, it's it's become a way that I can still make records and make them cheap because you're only paying for that time and I don't right. have to pay for overhead pay and overhead. there's no bills yes. and so it's like it's just you know straight ahead really this is, yeah you, you you rent this uh, Airbnb and we'll make the yeah. record there and you know like you know if you, if you go into a recording studio it's you know, it's between 1500 or $2,000 a day, and then you got to put everybody up in a hotel. So
0: they, they, well, what about all the gear?
1: I own all the gear. You own all the gear. So, the yeah. gear. So, so where do you store it when uh, you're So I have a rig in uh, the U.S., and I have a rig up here in Canada. Okay. And so uh, so if, I, if I'm working in the States, I just fly down. The gear's already there. Or if I'm working up here, the gear's here. Or if I'm working in Australia or whatever, I fly with it. And so okay. I, I've got, like, this small system where in the, like— like, when I made Tom Waits' record, uh, Real Gone, you know, I was traveling. I was a circus back then. And yeah. I had, like, a 24-foot truck, and, you know, I had, like, couches and rugs and lamps, and, you know, I was, like, a, you know, tents. And yeah. so I had all this crazy stuff, and so I would set it up in, in crazy locations, and Tom's record was made in a little schoolhouse. Okay. And so it just happened. Everything just worked out perfect. Yeah. fit. So, yeah, so everything now is, you know, I think it's... Uh, Seven road cases, small ones that I travel with. I've got. Uh, I use a. I don't use Pro Tools or anything like that. I use a thing called Radar. Okay. Radar is a 24-track uh, digital recorder. I think it's the best-sounding digital recorder out there. And so uh, I've been using it for years because it's very similar to a tape recorder. Okay. It's got a play button, rewind, and you can punch in, and and there's no. You don't have to like crossfade anything. It's just like it's like just kind of like straight ahead recording you know like and i'm fast with it and i can edit and like so i'm I'm a bit of a wizard with it and so so that's my tool of choice and then i travel that has like a flat screen touch mixer okay so i just travel with that and a pair of dyna audio speakers and 24 preamps and in three little cases okay and so it's like a i can go anywhere so uh i I made this record in russia Flew to Russia with it and really? did it in this big, huge kind of like palace, and uh, and really cool. so yeah, yeah, so it's uh, I'm kind of like a traveling kind of a circus. Circus, yeah. yeah that's <laughs> it.
0: So can you can you actually explain to me because I was reading through your credits and um, for myself and and the listeners who aren't maybe as familiar, I noticed on the credits, you know, some records were produced, engineered, mix. Can you tell us yeah. the difference between producing, engineering, mixing, and
1: recording? Yeah. Um, okay, so let's start with um, uh, an engineer is the person that's kind of behind the console. Okay, And so you always see the guy, you know, with his hands on the fader. and So he's kind of the engineer, and he's the guy that will set up the microphones, and he'll do all the recording. He's like the technical guy, right? Okay. And so his, his job is to kind of capture the recordings and, and take care of all, you know, take care of anything technical. Where the producer, he is the guy that's, you know... It used to be you were responsible for the for the budget. And you were responsible for hiring the musicians, and and you were responsible for a musical kind of idea of how to take this band and and make them into something you know cool. Yeah. And so so it's his idea um, on how how to kind of do this. And so, uh, but as the so once the record is is recorded. Then it usually goes off to the mixer. Mm -hmm. So it's another guy who's like an engineer. Okay. And so he's on the console and he takes all those recordings and he makes sense of it all. Blends it all, makes, you know, put the background vocals on the right and the guitars are on the The left. And he makes all those kind of decisions. And the producer just kind of like, Says when he likes it, and okay. makes it sound when when okay, it's sounding good now, and, and uh, but maybe let's try putting a little more reverb on the background vocals and mm-hmm. just kind of giving a little bit of advice here and there. So, um, so, and so the producer is really the the guy that oversees the whole project and is responsible mm-hmm. for. Uh, for everything really and yeah. uh, so if anything goes wrong it's his fault Right. Okay. <laughs> so uh yeah so so it's usually it's like a team of like three people okay uh but i'm a one-man show so i'm all the above. i'm the engineer and i'm the mixer okay. and i'm also the producer so i'm in I, I know as making records i i know what i'm going to do when i'm mixing i know how the sound right. and so as i'm working like as I've already got an idea for this song, and so I already kind of have the, the effects dialed up for it. So when the band we record it and I play it back, the band gets to hear it more like what it's going to be sounding Sound like, like mixed. A, yeah. And so you know all effects are still all there, and everything's kind of placed in where it would be. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's it's good for the artist to hear it back in that form, but mostly you know they hear it back it's dry no effects on anything and, right. and then it sounds really bleak you know Yeah. so I try to make it as exciting as possible on the playback to hype them to make them feel like they they're sound better than yes. they are Yeah. so that's kind of one of my tricks um, so yeah so it, it, it's uh, it's definitely a uh, um, uh, a crazy job to have yeah. all, of, all the, of the all above of the above the yeah the one man one yeah. man road show and 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 also yeah i'm traveling yeah. and i find the locations and so the, there's kind of all these other levels to yeah. it and you know the one thing that people never think about i making a record is food right like you know i used to work on film yeah like producing film. food is a really important key because yeah. you know like i've done experiments uh, with the tragically hip actually yeah. where i fed them pasta and pizza on one night and uh we didn't get very good takes and then the next day i did a barbecue and they ate red meat really and next thing you know it's like six takes in a row it's yeah. just meant ma- it's like oh that's it's it. sort of how it, the food affects yeah yeah They're, so okay. i started to kind of like curb it okay we're gonna have a meat diet today and then yeah, oh yeah. it's gonna to be tomorrow too <laughs> yeah. yeah and so i i've kind of like pushed that you know and interesting as, and then you know i find know. it's always for
0: for budget when i worked on f- film production yeah. it was always for budget that people didn't account for feeding everybody yeah yeah I exactly. like, you know that's also one of the most expensive parts of
1: you got they, they spend more on food people yeah you yeah. got and they do on this music days. side of yeah. films you know yeah, yeah so it's it's crazy but anyway so the yeah so the um and i'm kind of a bit of a chameleon because depending on the people i'm working with mm-hmm. i kind of join their kind of like you know they're kind of uh not cult but their uh, aesthetic of, of the way yeah, of, of the way they live yeah and so like if if they're a vegan i eat vegan, vegan with, them. with them yeah and i bring in a vegan cook and we eat all vegan yeah and so i'm eating the same thing as them and i worked with this um guy from pakistan and he was a muslim and he was uh on a fast and i would fast for those 12 hours with him really and then now. and then yeah and then Just we right now actually. yeah exactly <laughs> and so uh so I, I would do the same thing, and he brought me, like, this set of clothing, and I would wear, like, okay. the, this this cool kind of clothing yeah, yeah. he gave me, and um, so, yeah, so I become, like, a chameleon with with everybody I melt into them. Yeah, which probably if, makes them a lot more comfortable yeah, with you. Yeah, right, and if they're religious, you know, like, I... I, I, I you know, partake I, I, in what they I partake yeah. in I ask them questions like you know yeah. what is it like to be like you know a uh, refried Christian and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah so yeah so it's uh, it's it's a bizarre thing that I've kind of like a, that's how I work but it's not the way everybody does. Yeah. so yeah. tell me then about
0: um, you know we had talked about it before pretty much your second project was working with Bob Dylan
1: yeah how like I mean that's got to be fairly intimidating <laughs> um it's uh the thing about it is it's because I'm you know I'm the guy that's doing everything it's not intimidating because you I gotta talk to Bob and say hey yeah. look, Bob are you comfortable with this you, like that you need more coffee like what do you right so uh, you're talking to somebody on a personal level right where there is no time for intimidation but I mean did you feel like the pressure of you know and I'm making a, an album for Bob Dylan right now <laughs> um no, I was never starstruck with, okay. with with anybody really because you know, working with musicians and stuff. It's 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 a, you get to know them on a human yeah yeah you, so. yeah you're on a yeah on a personal level and it, it's a, it's the time for starstruck thing is it's, is it's, it's it's past that and you yeah you get to see who this person is, really and, is you it. know they get put up on a what pedestal you like yeah. you know Bob Dylan oh my God like people would die yeah. to just you know touch him, and yeah. stuff like that so. But yeah, so it was always. But it was weird. The very first record, he was, he was. Uh, I think he was scared Okay. more than we were. You know, where we were enthusiastic and trying to do all this, you know, stuff and to impress him and, yeah. and stuff like that. Well, but um, he was scared for what? Trying new things, or I think he was just intimidated by yeah, maybe trying new things and and didn't. Well, first of all, he didn't know who we were. And right. Never met any of us before and so like you know it's, it's that first kind of uh, uh, how come he did decide to go with you guys rather than who maybe he had used before was right. it from the um, record from Bono uh, yeah he'd made a record uh, Bono had talked to Bob and said you know you should consider making a record in yeah. so it turned uh, that while we were making the uh, Neville Brothers Yellow Moon record um, Bob was playing in town mm-hmm. so he's playing uh, at, the, uh, at the zoo um, at the time and so he invited us to come see his show Mm-hmm. So we went to his show, and uh, uh, after the show, we got escorted back and onto the tour bus, mm-hmm. and, and there he was. He's on the tour bus, and he goes, what are you guys doing here? And we said, oh, we're making a record with the Nevels. And he goes, well, what's that sound like? And we said, well, why don't you come to the studio to listen, yeah. <laughs> tomorrow and have a listen? And, uh, and we've recorded two of your songs. We've done a version of Hollis Brown and a version of uh, God on Our Side. Mm-hmm. So, sure enough, he shows up the next day, and, and he I, I play him uh, Hollis Brown, and he doesn't say anything after I play it. He just kind of nods his head, yeah, and kind of approval. And then I play him uh, God on Our Side, which it's seven minutes long, right? Yeah. And it's Aaron Neville, and he just sounds like this angel. And it's, yeah. It's just amazing sounding, and... Uh, After that, he was just floored. He says, wow, I wasn't expecting that. This sounds incredible. So him and uh, Dan and Bob went into the kitchen and chatted. And Dan walked Bob out. And Dan walked back up. He goes, looks like we're making a record with Bob. So, wow, yeah. so now, and I, and
0: I think I read somewhere that that dan and and Bob ended up having a bit of a volatile relationship. Well, and you were kind of like the peacemaker between them.
1: It's well, I've made two records, and it's happened on both records. okay. And so uh, but yeah, so on O oh Mercy, it was, uh, you know, Bob was being a little snarky and just kind of strumming his guitar sloppily and and Dan was just not putting up with it. okay. He just he's got a quite quite a crazy temper. And so he just kind of, I could see him boiling. You know, that was, Irish he, temper. Yeah, it was just like, it was, he's, he's actually French, uh, oh, French, okay. French temper. Okay. And so um, uh, so he uh, I saw him boiling, and then he just lost it. And he just grabbed the dobro guitar and just, I uh, had like these floor wedges in front of Bob because he wouldn't wear headphones, and Dan just smashed this dobro right over the monitor and, uh, and then threw the guitar on the floor and started swearing, and... And, you know, and so I got up and walked out, and Malcolm Byrne, who was the other... So Bob, so, Bob, why, why was he playing sloppily? Like, why he was, was just, he just frustrated he, with the process, or...? Yeah, he was just kind of, like, uh, giving... Like, him, he was done for the day, or something? No, like? was done, but he was just being uh, a little bit arrogant. And okay. A little bit, kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, I, I think he was just... Uh, just kind of being a little bratty maybe Okay. Okay. I don't know, okay. you know? I don't know. Interesting. but I, I just saw you know like how this kind of thing just kind of developed and so blew so you're stuck in the middle
0: of this yeah so
1: right. I, I get you know I walk out and so bang let them work it out and then next thing you know you hear Bob leave and I go in and pick up the guitar and he's got a massive tent in the back of it and um, and I close down for the night and so it was, it was weird like it was like the first this happened within the first two weeks and I think, uh, you know, Dan's whole thing is he's a cheerleader in the studio and his production techniques are mm-hmm. hyping the band and it works great for, you know, you two and Bono. and like, Yeah. Bono, that's a great vocal. Yeah. Let's try it again. Like, yeah. you know, like jumping up and down. Like, yeah, yeah. And, uh, tried that with Bob and that kind of just fell flat and Bob just gave him a dry face. Right. Yeah. He's like, yeah, this is not exciting. And, yeah. and so, uh, you know, and Dan was like pushing him. You know, like, can you write a song? You know, like, you know, one of your old tracks. And he's like, I, I don't write like that anymore. You know, like, uh, and so, anyways, it's. Uh, I think you know, Dylan was was frustrated with Dan, and Dan, you know, was he, everything he tried, he would just shoot down. You know, Bob, yeah. and, and you know, we'd do a mix in it, and uh, in the afternoon, and Bob would come in at night, and we'd say we did this mix, and you know, check it out. We really love it, and he goes. Was it mixed in the daytime? And we said, "Yeah." He goes, "I don't want to hear it. You have to redo it at night. Uh, everything has to be done at night." And so, for what reason? I think he just uh, he just feels that uh, the nighttime is the right time to be listening to this music, and, okay. and it needs to be mixed and recorded at ah, night. At night. Yeah. So yeah. So it was a quirky little thing, but um, so the first two weeks he didn't even acknowledge that I was even in the studio. Okay. Never said my name once never and you know like I'd you know, set up the microphone he'd sit down got a guitar put the microphone in front of him he'd turn over this way start strumming so i put the microphone here and you know turn back he here. turned back over this way and put the microphone here so he kept on so I just sat at his feet and I like turned it over here. yeah, and yeah. I was like okay you know I'm gonna chase you, you yeah, yeah. and so it was a cat and mouse game yeah. between us and so and then he would get up and we the that record i had the control room in the kitchen so there was like a kitchen counter the stove there's coffee and and then there's a console speakers and and we ended up making the whole record in the kitchen and so and but there was a big huge parlor beautiful parlor high ceiling stained glass windows yeah it was gorgeous and we had three pianos in there Dan wanted to buy a piano, so he had three shipped in to to test him, right? Yeah. And so Dan was, was going to buy one of these pianos, but he didn't know which one. So and so Dylan, you know, he had this song "Ring Them Bells," which is on piano. Yeah, yeah. So he kept Dylan kept going into the piano room, working on it. hadn't quite worked it out yet. And but every time he kept going in, he always went to this. Uh, uh, baldwin piano that we okay. had and, you know there was a steinway from the 80s and there was a steinway from the 1800s and then there was this baldwin that we got from the local piano store and so Dan was, you know got up the courage and went up to bob and he goes um bob you know um you keep coming to the same piano why do you play this piano is it that you know is it the uh the tone of it or the uh, the feel of the keys or uh, the action and uh Bob turns around to him and he goes, uh, no, I play this one because it's the only one with a stool. <laughs> 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 so, uh, so, you know, Dan's face just dropped. Oh, oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> okay. So so, so did he end up buying that one? So uh, <laughs> he, he didn't buy that one. He actually bought... The two. I wonder. Steinways. I wonder when he
0: took it back to the store, returned it, and they'd say, "You know, Bob Dylan was playing this, this yeah, piano." Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, we we didn't go for the Baldwin in the end, but um, the two Steinways did get picked up, in, Wow. Uh, and so, so yeah, so it was uh, it was kind of a crazy situation for those first two weeks, and that's when the dobro got smashed. But after the dobro smashing nobody ever said another word about it. Okay. It was never spoken about. I never... You know, Bob never said anything. Dan never said anything. It was like this, you know, thing. Okay. But it was the crossroads to making the next... The the record where... ...Bob actually was getting into it and understood. And so I'm into motorcycles and I you know I got a couple of Harleys parked in the courtyard and, yeah. and so it was kind of like almost the next day I think it is where Bob comes in and he sees me and I'm just kind of fixing one of the bikes or something loose on it and I'm tightening it up and uh, and he goes hey Mark you think you can get me one of those? I'm like yeah I think I can find one." so I had a friend in uh, St. Petersburg Florida that, that sold old Harleys and stuff yeah. like that So I phoned him up and I said, do you got anything? And he goes, yeah, I got a beautiful uh, 1966 shovel head, first year, and it's electric blue. It's a beauty. Amazing paint job. And so I said, can you send me some Polaroids? And so he sent me the Polaroids, and when I got the Polaroids, I showed Bob, and he goes, let's get it. And it's like, he got all excited, and he, I had a little table beside his chair where he worked, yeah. and he put his the postcards of the, I mean the, the polar Polaroids of the bike there, and he'd always pick them up and look at them all day long. And so I went on the weekend, and I got him this bike, this beautiful nineteen sixty six shovelhead. Where were you guys recording the album? Oh, we were making the record in New Orleans. New Orleans, yeah, okay. so still quite a distance. Still, from the yeah, yes, yeah. but still, you know, like it's, you know, to go there for the weekend, it's, it's, it's not, yeah. It's, yeah, it's not too crazy. So yeah, so, so I he came back you drive the bike back up. Uh I I went with my girlfriend and she had a van and we drove okay, the van nice. there and we spent the night and you know, swam and then came back the next day. And so yeah, so it was uh it was cool. And so once I got the bike back, you know, Bob came early that day, you know, to see the bike and and so uh I said uh, you know, like he loved it. He like got out of the car and he's with his bodyguard Victor and and he goes, uh, I said, I started up for him. He's like, wow. And he sits on it and he's got no helmet. And he takes it out and for a ride. And you think he's just going to go around the block. Yeah. But he's gone for an hour and a half, you know. Yeah. He's out riding through New Orleans, no helmet on. And he comes back. And we're still in the driveway waiting for him. And uh, he said, "Yeah, police are really friendly around here, you know. <laughs> they're all waving at me. I said, they're waving at you because they don't have a helmet on. Yeah, There's yeah. a helmet law here. And uh, so... So I ended up getting a helmet, and so I would take him on these rides to show him some cool places to That's go nuts. to ride where, you know, it's, it's, you're out of traffic. and okay. So I'd drive him up onto the levee, and we'd drive along the Mississippi and down along River Road, like, through these, like, beautiful trees or like, tunnels and yeah. big, huge Annabella mansions. And, and, like, it's kind of like Easy Rider. I'm not sure right. if you ever yeah, saw yeah. Easy Rider. But it was kind of, like, a little similar to that. And so, yeah, so... And then, so once he knew where to go... Yeah, um, he would kind of take these trips by himself, okay. And so, in his book, so riding in the afternoon, yeah, and recording at night, exactly. So, in his book, he he writes about you know that I got him the bike and and stuff like that. And so, but he said that these rides that he would take were, were the time where he could think about like how that this oh, I get this now, I see where this record's going, yeah, it, head it, a it, bit. yeah, yeah, it, it kind of uh it made him focus on on what was going on so i think uh and it was the first time that he had gotten a bike since his uh 1966 motorcycle accident right where they he broke his neck or almost broke his neck so uh so yeah so he got excited about getting into bikes so now he's after the two weeks he's calling me mark and you know i'm on a personal level you know he's always asking me and you know, so now, so, did you still have to follow him with the microphone? Like, no, oh, no, no. Now, and, he and really now participated. he's participated. Yeah. Now he's being kind of normal and yeah, yeah, and, uh, not so much a prima donna. Yeah, normal. exactly. That's so, it. so yeah, but he, you know, he's an amazing guy, and I really appreciate him lyrically because uh, he he's really dedicates himself. Oh, yeah. to he's a poet. To, like, yeah, and I've never seen anybody work on lyrics like that, no, kind of right. like focused and hard. Like he'd have a piece of paper in front of him. But it, it wouldn't be a song. It would just be words scattered all over in all different ways and turn it around. Like, there's no way of reading it because yeah. it was just, like, words. And he'd just pull words from it. and then Really? And he wouldn't write them down. And then he would just kind of, this is the song, Go and he'd it, play the yeah. song. And then so uh, it, was, it was quite uh, amazing to see yeah. somebody so dedicated to l- lyrics. And, and their crafting. Yeah. And so because I quit school early on you know I didn't have an English education so I always say I got my English education from Bakhto because you know I'd have to write out his lyrics and and you get to see patterns and wow he does this and then he does a throwaway line here but then Mm -hmm. he he rhymes it here and so there's like a he's got like a, a pretty cool technique going on yeah interesting yeah it's always interesting to see everybody's different yeah everybody's
0: kind of different i remember going to the rock and roll hall of fame once okay and there was a there was some of the original they had a bruce springsteen exhibit on at the time which was really cool another great lyricist but i always remember there was the original writing of walk this way by Aerosmith. okay yeah and it was just, like, riddled with spelling errors. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, and it was written on, like, a napkin or something. Right, it was right, on right. a piece of paper, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I, as I mentioned to you before we started, I'm, I am mean, U2 is my f- favorite band of yeah. all time, um, being Irish and everything. But yeah. just, um, and you worked with them on All That You Can't Leave Behind. Yeah. Which well,
1: I've been working with them for... You for worked you, on them for yeah, a few yeah, things. Like, okay. Well, just kind of, they they would come through New Orleans and... You know, so Bono would come and sing on the Neville's record. And then, oh, really? Okay. So, yeah, so, the, I, so you had I, met Bono a few I'd times I met Bono before. and Adam uh, first, and yeah. then um, uh, Edge later on, and then... Uh, Larry. Larry. Yeah,
0: and... Um, So tell me, because it's funny, I I can never pick a favorite U2 record. I kind of have, like, a favorite from each decade. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so it's Joshua Tree, Actong Baby, and All That You Can't Leave Behind. Right. So um, I would love to hear some stories about making that album. And and to me, it's funny when you were saying about, um, you know, you get to know these people on a human level. There's no pedestal anymore and stuff. Because to me, like, Bono is that, like epitome of a rock star you know he's mm-hmm. almost like a figure yeah, yeah. not a person you right, know yeah. it's and uh so i'm very curious on what bono the person is like right. well he's an amazing
1: storyteller houston well, yeah yeah <laughs> so like you know you've been to ireland and the mm-hmm. irish are just so amazing at yeah. telling stories and so bono is a storyteller yeah and he's really great at it mm-hmm. and you know they all are and everybody's got their own funny little stories but but he he is like a really amazing uh, storyteller and he and he makes you laugh everything is really funny he's really it's funny the irish wit he, yeah irish wit and everything's really dry and yeah but it's funny as hell so yeah so on, on a personal level He's the funnest guy you, you want to hang out with, you know. Mm-hmm. Like he's he's really fun to, you know. And so I first met him in New Orleans. So we just finished um, Neville's record, and I just found this house for the Bob Dylan record, this beautiful old mansion. And so I had, like, futons and stuff for everybody to sleep in there, but we were still at the, the other location. And so they just finished uh, Joshua Tree, and uh, Bono and Adam were driving across America. One of their, they just want to drive. They love America, yeah. And so oh, okay. The yes. culture and everything. So they're infatuated with it. So, uh, so they're driving across, and they end up going dances. We're coming through New Orleans, and then we're heading towards L.A. And so, um, so they they come and they spend the night and and hang out for a couple of days with us. And so we take Bono. You know, out to show him around New Orleans, and so yeah. we, we take him to this club called Storyville, and you know, just show him, you know, like what you know, New Orleans, uh, you know, feel and and music is like. And so we take him there, and it's just kind of like a blues night or whatever. And so we're at a table, and Bono's got like this beret on, right, like okay. a French beret, and and some like round sunglasses or round glasses, and uh, we're sitting there at the table, and suddenly this drunk guy comes out and goes. I know you <laughs> and it's like you're bio from you too because their video was like huge at the time yes right? yeah. and so uh, and he goes I don't know what you're talking about uh, and he's talking in a French right, accent yeah. like uh, me, I don't know yeah. so uh, so the guy <laughs> goes away right and so ends up you know we you know, have our drinks and then we get out there and we're, so we're standing in front out front and out stumbles the, the drunk guy right he goes yeah bono <laughs> and so bono takes his thing off and takes his glasses off right he goes i knew that was you that fake glasses and that fake nose and meanwhile it was his real the nose, nose. <laughs> <laughs> so uh so yeah so we had a, a good night and you know we took him out to the uh, uh alligator uh farm kind of thing and yeah. they get to see alligators and uh, out there and and, uh, yeah, and so we just kind of took care of him for a couple of days and showed him around and you, know, and, you know, introduced him to all the foods. And there was this uh, woman, uh, uh, her name was Miss Alberta or something like that, and she made food at her home mm-hmm. and uh, she had a little jukebox there and her husband had a single back in the 50s and so she would always play. So you if you go over to her house and she would cook you red beans and rice and yeah. all these traditional um, dishes that are New Orleans style. And, because you know you get them in restaurants, it tastes good, but like it's nothing like deal. home cooking, yeah. you know. So so we take them over there, and she plays the song on the jukebox, and so Bono and uh, Adam they get to like wow, this is they loved it, you know. Yeah, they, they thought it was crazy. So yeah, so it was, uh, you know, you, with them on a personal level, it's it's really fun, and we have a great time. Yeah, working is a little bit different. Okay. Um, you know, I always wondered, like, why I was never uh, invited to the other records uh, that Dan was making with U2 because, you know, we were, I was living in New Orleans and Dan had just bought this house which became uh, called Kingsway yeah. and it was a studio uh, that I made a lot of records in, and so he went off to make a record with U2 uh, uh, called Act On Baby. Yes. And yeah. so that was made in Berlin and and or, or, you know Ireland and stuff, but. Um, so so he left me in New Orleans to kind of run the studio. Yeah. And I thought, well, maybe I'll get a chance to, to work Yeah. to go over. Yeah. yeah. And so he would come back from Berlin and to New Orleans and he'd play me what, what they had been working on. It sounded horrible. Really? It was like a garage, the worst garage band you'd ever heard. Yeah. And they're like, you know, trying to battle it out And they think that you know, because they go into the studio, they don't have any songs written. There's like no ideas, and usually it's Dan. They do everything in the studio. Yeah, everything's done in the studio, and you know, and usually it's Dan and Brian. They go in early and they come up with some sounds and some melodies and stuff like that. And so the band shows up, but they got nothing this time, right? And so they're freaking out, and so they're playing. He plays me like you know what they've been working on in Berlin, and. Ugh, it doesn't sound good. It doesn't. Yeah. It's like it's just like the worst, you know, garage band you yeah. ever heard. And so, uh, so he goes back at, for the next uh, chunk in Berlin, and and you know they're they're sweating it out, and they they're you know everybody's arguing, and you know they're at uh, each other's uh, wit end, and so the song one comes out, yeah, and suddenly boom. It comes out of nowhere and yeah. like wow, and so everybody like perks up. Okay, wow, this is this is we got something, we got something. and yeah. so that was kind of like the one that kind of led led then, to the rest w- of the album. Yeah, exactly, and so that's like um, one of their most iconic albums. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's mysterious ways, and so yeah. And I, I think even
0: all that—it's funny because all that you can't leave behind is actually the first. I mean, I know all the U two albums now, like the head, but right. all that you can't leave behind was kind of like the first one where I started getting into YouTube. Because okay. I was came out in two thousand one, I think. Right, so yeah. I was about twelve at the time. Okay. So right, it's like yeah. right so around the young. time you get interested in music. Right, yeah, yeah. And um, and that if I remember there had been quite a gap in albums before that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. So it was
1: almost like a bit of like their comeback album. Yeah. yeah. For, and, well they made a couple of, you know, like lemon or what was that? Uh, yeah, with uh, Zappa and, and, and yeah, pop and stuff. Pop so it was kind yeah. of like the the coming back. To yeah, the classic exactly. U2 yeah, and... exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah. So that that. So one, do they do the whole album? And uh, it was the whole album. That, was you know, in New Orleans? Uh, no. Uh, the, by now, I'm at the Teatro. Oh, the, in, in right in, in, in California. In California, but what happens on a U two record is it's. They take a long time, you know, like okay. it's like a year, a year and a half. You yeah. Know, you know, some people die, babies are born. Right. You know, like, like there's a whole of you know, go thing back. going on while well, well, you're making the record. And so... I kind of started off in the beginning with what we call the seeds of the song yeah. and like, Oh wow, that's great. And you know, I got this idea for a chorus, but maybe this one, yeah. and he'll sing three and I go, well, that's the one for sure. He's right, like, really? Right. You think that's the one? I'm like, yeah. And so, uh, so that's this, so that's how they get born. they threw through these kind of like seeds mm-hmm. and ideas and we just kind of piece them together and then they go back and play it with the boys. Right. And, and so, uh, so, so, especially on that record it was um and they had some mega hits from that album it yeah. was and so that's it started and i thought okay we're on to something cool yeah and they came back kind of the middle of the record and you know bono's infatuated with uh hip-hop and and you know kind of like groove type mood yeah. music and so the the record had was all programmed okay and it was like it was like a it sounded really cool yeah. and like Bono singing over these hip hop beats, and and but it was it was uh, it was kind of a you know it wasn't like a U two record. It was kind yeah. of like a you know hip hop record with Bono singing on it, and so they were super excited about it, and so. Um, Jimmy Iveen was the head of uh, Interscope at the time. And so uh, we were working at the teatro and we're, they said, okay, we're going to go for our meeting with Jimmy today. And so they go into town and they have their meet- meeting with Jimmy. And <laughs> so Jimmy, Jimmy hears the record and he goes, this is fantastic. I can't believe it. This is unbelievable. But where the hell is you 2 Yeah. Like, who is this? Yeah. Like, you know, where's Larry? where's that like uh, hello i don't hear it. where's you too you know like he was like yeah like really like you know and so they just went from being excited to like to like, tr- yeah. like shrinking down and so they said all right we're gonna go back back in and so that that whole next chapter is kind of um kind of where beautiful day kind of yeah. sprouted out i think they spent more time on the song beautiful day than on Impressive. the whole record really and so because that song that man, that was song was is... from pieces and was like a all put together kind of thing so okay. so I think uh, yeah they they just kept on trying to reinvent it and make it yeah. you know kind of another thing and so I think um, yeah and so it's a year and a half in, into it and it's like and so I now worked at the very end of it and so at the very end of the record um, everything's kind of done. And, you know, it's, it's kind of factory work in the way they work, where they'll take uh, the song Beautiful Day. Mm-hmm. That's their single. Yeah. And so we're going to have to have some, who's the best mixer? You're like, okay, oh, there's a gra- the guy in uh, uh, Steve Lillywhite. He's mixed all of our records. He's, let's give it to him. Mm-hmm. And so they give it to him, but they also give it to a guy in L.A. who's like, you know, the best mixer in L.A. And they give it to a guy in New York. Oh, okay. So they got four people mixing the same, the same song all at the same time. Nobody knows this is going on. Yeah. And so what they do is they get the song back and they go, wow, uh, Steve's got a great uh, verses. The guy in L.A. has got a killer chorus. Yeah. And the guy from New York, man, wow. The whole outro section, that's exploding. Yeah. And so they take all those bits and they cut it all together. And they make the one song mixed by four people to to be like one one cohesive piece of music. Yeah. So that's why... Their some of their songs are just like you know like when it hits a chorus it's like wow, beautiful day yeah. you know like it's a big huge kind of event right yeah and so um it's an like elevation too yeah 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 exactly so so that's that's the way they work and you know there's there's like multiple people doing multiple things at the same time gotcha. and, and so yeah so it's like it's it's a whole it's a team big business <laughs> yeah it's like a great you know they got the money they they, they you know Put, the time, in, put so, the time into it. Put the time into it. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. And so, do you know,
0: like, can you tell, because there was some, I mean, you also worked on R.E.M.'s, Automatic for the People, Tragically yeah. Hips, uh, Day for Night, and stuff. Yeah. Did you know when working on these albums, like, that we really got something here kind of
1: thing? Or you yeah. just don't know till you put it out there? You don't know. And, like, you think, okay, this is a great song. But you don't know what's, what's really, you know, going to hit the, you know you know it's gonna explode you know right you know like with especially with the tragically hip you know i i'd made the record and you know i part of my whole thing is i like to experiment with sounds Mm -hmm. and use drum treatments and you know crazy sounds of the vocal and guitar and so i was pushing them for like to try new things yeah so i made a record that didn't really sound like tragically hip you know it wasn't a traditional rock and roll you know uh meat and potatoes kind of record it was like more of a you know a darker animal so you know like once i took it to the record company once we were done everybody was excited and then the record company heard it and they go uh we don't like it yeah and what are we going to do with this and like you know and so they didn't get it and there was mca and they just were just not behind the record and yeah i thought you know i wasn't you know around in canada i was working on other records well i was well that came out and so i never saw the growth of it and see how well it did mm. you know so i would come back and every now and again and oh it's on the radio okay wow okay and then years later you know you you see it's people's favorite record and yeah and uh so it's a it's a it's a funny one like you know you, you think you've ruined their career and actually well, it's like because even like rem that's kind of like their milestone yeah exactly yeah. yeah yeah and so yeah so when you're when you're recording these songs like you you know R.E.M., I, uh, not that I was not a fan, but I uh, was like, uh, you know, I you know just finished a record with Dylan and I'd been on this kind of like lyrical kind of like plateau of like yeah. amazing lyrics. And then so I thought some of their lyrics weren't happening. And so okay. I thought, hmm man on a moon what yeah yeah like like what is this about you know like it's like but you know sure it's genius movie, in the end everything yeah, yeah 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 so so i was questioning stuff at the time and uh but it was it was cool to work with them because uh you know they always worked in a traditional studio and so I, the first record was done at um well part of it was done at kingsway uh automatic for people and then they went on to I think they did it at Miami or something like that okay. and then on the second record um, Monsters uh, they, they're, all their records are produced by Scott Litt who's okay. who's a really great producer and a friend of mine actually so uh, he's um, so on the second record they asked if I would just come in by myself with without Scott and just so that way we could flush through right. the songs without any intimidation okay. of people you know criticizing whatever you know about the song so so it was kind of a 10 day period that I was just in there you know flushing through these songs and yeah. so some of them made the finish line so yeah fantastic is there yeah.
0: any um, is there any projects that you kind of hold most near and dear to you
1: that you worked on and you're kind of like that's um, well you know it's like uh, it's funny I time out like your time, time out of mind is is what I feel like that was my kind of like my sound and my yes, creation, okay. I, you know, I recorded it, I mixed it, I was there, Dan and Bob were, you know, they weren't talking, and they Dan wasn't allowed to say anything to Bob, and... So you feel like he, you really put Yeah, it in so, so it was really just me and Bob, and he really took a shining to me, and we really got along great, and so I felt like, you know, Bob would call me, not Dan, you know, yeah, exactly. so it was, a, so I thought it was, you know, it was a good connection, and I, I felt... You know, when he won, I wasn't expecting it to win three Grammys, and yeah. and you know he asked me to come to uh, to New York to mix. the He was playing the Grammys that year. He said, "Can you come and mix my show live to TV?" And I said, "Yeah, no problem." And so went to New York, and he put us up at the Street. Had you done that before? Um, TV? I had done just a little kind of you know like a, a truck recording, like you're you okay, know, you're yeah. in the back of a truck, and so I'd done some truck recordings in the past, but. Uh, n- nothing on that level. Uh, that level, you yeah. know, So it was kind of, uh, kind of exciting, you know, yeah. uh, to to do it, and it was kind of a crazy one because uh, um, his performance, he, he wanted it to be look like black and white, and he had all these people standing around him, and so one of the guys that was in the crowd, like in the people that was standing around, um, jumped out, took his shirt off, and he had soy bomb written on his chest, and so. This changed the way TV uh, is is seen today Mm -hmm. uh, because they had no filters on it in in, in 97 where they didn't expect, you know, this guy jumps out, he just starts dancing like a a weirdo and he's got soy bomb written on his chest. Is he going to blow himself off? And Bob's kind of shying back, you know, standing back from it. So uh, ever since then, they put a delay on anything live. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and even if you tried to look it up, on um, on YouTube, they've cut that somehow that section, edited that right. out of there, and uh, they really? did a good job because you can't tell. What so, year was that? Ninety-seven. Wow. Yeah.
0: So that's that's around the time that they started doing plays yeah. like on exactly. Wow. Yeah. 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 So
1: that way, you know, the Super Bowl show, you know, or right, like right. uh, a <laughs> Justin Timberlake,
0: what uh, yeah. <laughs> Janet Jackson? Moments. Janet, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, do you, you know, now that you're feeling a little better, do you think you'll go back to producing?
1: Yeah, soon? I'm I'm, I'm kind of like... I just made a record in New Orleans... I'm uh, sorry, in uh, in L.A. with uh, this all-girl band called the Mustangs of the West. Okay. And so I've just finished mixing that. So I've, this is the first record that I'm kind of back in on. Uh, yeah, yeah. It. And, you know, I've been doing a little mixing here and there, but um, I think that's really the first production coming back into it. And yeah. so I've got a couple other ones kind of lining up so is uh,
0: there is there any
1: artist that you're
0: seeing and hearing that you would really like to work with at the moment um
1: really uh, I'm trying to think uh, um I'm not quite sure, really. Yeah, but I, I you don't you, you kind of just take it as it goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So usually, you know, I get the invitations. You know, people like the records I make, and they call the management office. Yeah, and they kind of pitch it to me. You want to work with them? Like mm-hmm. mm, I don't know. <laughs> and so yeah, so I'm trying to pick you know people that it's going to help you know yeah. with kind of coming out. And so yeah, so but I think um, the the book coming out, I think is going to. Boost a bunch of stuff that's going to yes. come back, and
0: yes. so. so tomorrow you're doing the book release at the yeah. Horseshoe Tavern. Yeah. So, what um, you know for people
1: interested in going, what what will be happening? Um, tomorrow's a special event because it is the it's the the launch for the book. Then you know the book came out on the 14th, and now it's t- going to be tomorrow the 22nd where I'm doing this. So I'm doing a book signing. But I'm doing also a photo exhibit. Okay. Um, So throughout the years, what I've been doing is time-lapse photography. So I just kind of put my camera on in the studio. And so I have all these amazing shots of Dylan and Tom Waits and, you know, Neil Young and, and Joni Mitchell. And so, like, it's like, as a photographer... To go into a studio, and as soon as you put your camera up, people, you know, yeah, they, yeah. you know. So with time lapse, they don't know they're they being know taken they photos. Are, yeah. So I have all these natural photos of people working in the studio. Yeah. And it's a it's, so, it's so I'm opening Very my cool. my my kind of photo library to people that come to the show tomorrow, and they're going to get to see what it looked like while I was making these records. Yeah. Because you know I'm t- talking about it in the book, and I'm trying to explain it. But now you're going to be able to actually see. Where what the schoolhouse looked like where I made Tom Waits' record. Yeah. And, you know, like the, the mansion that I made, listened to Williams' record. And so it's very architectural in a way. Where I picked all these, like, amazing kind of architectural mm-hmm. buildings, and some of them are made by amazing architects, and some of them are really high-tech, like, futuristic, and other ones are, you know, 1920s and old. And then, you know, like in Russia, they're, like, you know like you know old castles and stuff mm. so so it's an amazing on an architectural so it's a photo, photography yeah, exhibit yeah. as well yeah so it's an exhibit that people are going to get to see these this, the installations I've done and the Behind the scenes in the studio, you okay. know, you get to see Robert Plant there singing and working on lyrics, and you get okay. to see Bob Dylan, you know, also working on lyrics and then singing, and same with. Uh, so it's a real kind of behind the scenes. Yeah, event. yeah. So it's a it's the first time I'm opening this up. So it's a okay. It's a, um so the Grammy Museum has asked me to do an exhibit there. Okay. And so uh, July, uh, July. Where's the Grammy Museum? It's in L. A. In L. A. Okay. So on July. 10th I'm going to do start do, on there. Okay. do one there and it might be an exhibit that kind of lives on for a little little longer. You know? Very cool. Yeah so I think and uh, then June 1st was June 1st is, I'm having a it's my cancer free concert and I'm doing it oh, in, cool. It's in Hamilton at the um, it's called the Music Hall it's right beside Hamilton Place. Yes. Yeah. It's a beautiful church amazing kind of like stained glass windows and it's got this kind of like wrap around balcony yeah. and so I'm doing kind of tribute to hamilton music and all the people I work from from hamilton from teenage head to Tom Wilson, Tim Gibbons, like the whole local they're all going to be performing. They're all going to be performing. Okay. But they're going to be performing songs from my catalog. Okay. So they've all picked a song from they like Bob it. Dylan yeah. or Neil Young or Joni Mitchell or whatever and so so it's going to be an amazing night of music done, you know, by you know, praying tribute to the musicians of Hamilton. Wow. So, yeah, so it's going to be an interesting. Because I know, I read also that
0: you did a show back in
1: October. That's right. For, yeah. 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 That one. But, um, so I've decided, you know, that I have the pull to um, bring awareness of my melanoma cancer. Yes. Yeah. And so I've, I've decided to dedicate the rest of my life to bringing awareness to people just to tell them, simple as you know putting a little bit of sunscreen on you know can protect you from the Mm -hmm. sun because the sun is deadly i got a sunburn the other day and i had sunscreen on yeah i was just exposed to the sun too long Mm -hmm. and it just kind of burned through it and my nose kind of still feels funny so yeah so and i want to um bring uh for the research for melanoma because the, the treatment that I'm on only works on 40% of the people. So I want to raise money to help Dr. Butler and his team at uh, Princess work, Margaret yeah. develop, you know, melanoma treatments. And and for the other people that can't, can't uh, that it doesn't work About on. 60%. So, yeah. yeah, 60, which is a big chunk. And I was it's very majority, lucky yeah. that it worked on me. Yeah. And so, you know, he said, you know, three years ago, you'd be dead. Yeah, you know, the chemotherapy does not work on it, oh, no, and no. it just kills more people than it helped. Wow. And so now, luckily, with this immune therapy, it's a, it's it's a, it's um, you know, it's working great. But we still need more research. Mm-hmm. So that the last October. Uh, concert I brought in Sarah McLaughlin Randy backman uh, Sam Roberts uh, Ian Thornley. like uh, everybody I've kind of worked with worked over the with years they all said we'll help you mm-hmm. and so they came we had did it at Roy Thompson Hall it was a beautiful event a great night and uh, everybody loved it and so I raised a bunch of money and got it for, for Princess to, Margaret for Princess Margaret for his uh, for his research and so same thing with uh, the Hamilton event it's it's also uh, a charity that I'm going to, the money that we make was, is also, go. also going to be uh, donated to uh, their melanoma research, and so I'm going to continue to do these events mm-hmm. and and had you uh, have you ever planned events before? No, and well, <laughs> I, I was working with Daniel Anwar on a the, a festival called the Harvest Fest. Okay, and that was outside of Hamilton, and I helped him put it together, and you know I got feist. To play there, yeah. to open up, and um, a bunch of other friends that you know, like so, it kind of like started off as this kind of cool little kind of festival, and then it grew, and then I kind of left that camp to because I was just too busy with my own yeah. production. I mean, event planning yeah. itself as a whole. Yeah. So, so, it was, so I got the taste of doing a festival. And yeah. So now I, I feel like I, I have to. I'm paying back, you know, like uh, yeah, I'm, I'm lucky to be alive, and so if i can save one life you know from this just by amazing because they're using your craft yeah to exactly so and i've worked with enough people that we can keep this or turn it into a festival and and i want to make it a yearly event and so um so yeah so that's my goal is to continue doing these concerts so Mm -hmm. i'm a bit of a promoter these days and so it's 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 hard to sell tickets to these shows and but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not giving up, and I'm going to keep, uh, keep doing this to, to kind of, yeah, bring awareness. So, yeah. So, June 1st is... June 1st in uh, Hamilton. In Hamilton. What's the music? Uh, the music hall? It's called What's the what? music hall, yeah. Yeah. And um, so at just 6, between 6.30 and 8, I'm doing a book signing okay. in the hall and also exhibiting more photos. More photos. And so people... Concert. Yeah, exactly. In, Sounds like a fantastic concert. Yeah, yeah, so it should be a, a fun deal great music great musicians playing the, your favorite songs from all my the artists that i work with sounds amazing yeah and uh mark thank you so
0: much for oh. for coming on the podcast no worries it's been great speaking with yeah, you yeah yeah you made it easy man
1: ah, i just felt like i'm talking so glad, to you so. um,
0: <laughs> i'm glad great. that we get to share this with everyone
1: yeah yeah it's gonna be amazing i hope uh, people will dig it thank you okay thank appreciate you appreciate it all right cheers a man